Good morning, everyone. My name is Brian. I'm the pastoral assistant here at Crawford Avenue. It's good to see all of you this morning. This morning, we're going to be in Luke 24. If you brought a Bible, please open it to Luke 24. We're going to be starting in verse 1. For those of you who didn't bring a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. Uh, please open that up, and it should be on page 884. Page 884, Luke chapter 24, verse 1. This morning, we're going to be talking about why we can sing, who can stand in your way. There is power in your name. Why is there power in Jesus' name? Who is Jesus and what did he do? We've been in a series uh, on the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. And this morning, I'm going to look at it from a little bit different view. And we're going to look at the gospel account of Luke on the resurrection. Luke 24, verse 1, I'm going to start reading. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they looked in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. In returning to the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and all the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Pray with me. Father, we worship you this morning. God, we come to you. We want to worship you through song. We want to sing to you, for you are powerful. We want to pray to you, worship you through prayer, Lord, and now we want to worship you uh, through seeing your word speak. And so, God, I pray that that would be what happened this morning. I pray that you would speak through your word through me. pray that it would be clear and that you would move in our hearts to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning with two quotes about the resurrection of Jesus. Two quotes. Listen to these quotes. The first is from the Bible. It's from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Second quote. So that was from the first century, the Apostle Paul. Second quote from the 21st century, from renowned atheist Richard Carrier. This is how he began a guest lecture at Yale University in the year 2000. Just so you know, an atheist is someone who does not believe in the existence of God, who believes that there's no God, that God does not exist. He said, quote, he he started the lecture saying, I don't buy the resurrection story. By that, by this resurrection story, I mean the tales of the gospel. 
of Jesus physically rising again from the grave. As a professional historian, I do not believe we have anywhere near sufficient evidence or reason to believe this. Do you feel the tension that those two quotes create? On the one hand, we have the Apostle Paul saying, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we're still in our sins and our faith is futile, that Christianity is meaningless and it's nothing if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Then on the other hand, we have uh, Carrier saying, they're myths. These are tales. I don't buy them. Does that make you feel a little uncomfortable? It does me. There's a little tension there. Because either Jesus Christ rose from the dead, or he didn't. The resurrection is either fact or it's fiction. Paul says if it's fiction, Christianity matters nothing. I experienced uh, actually a few lectures, not quite as um, explicit, but a few lectures like carriers at the University of Georgia during my time. I was a freshman, my freshman year at the University of Georgia, and I had just become a Christian. I've just become a Christian. I go up to Athens, and in one of my first classes, uh, it was um, psychology. I had a professor who was an outspoken atheist, and more than that, he was an outspoken um, antagonist to Christianity. Um, in his lectures, I have, I've just become a Christian, and I felt like he was smacking around the little bit of faith that I had. I had just become a Christian, and basically he's making me feel in order to believe Christianity, you just have to take your brain out, set it down, and then walk into my class. Because you cannot keep your brain with you and believe in Christianity to come in my class. You have to turn your brain off to believe Christianity. As we've seen, Christianity is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity started because his followers started declaring that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that's how Christianity was birthed. And it's based on the resurrection of Jesus. And the question I want to ask this morning, is that true? Was my professor true or right? Do you have to turn off your brain to believe in Christianity? Or does it hold intellectual water? The first thing I want to look at this morning is what happened. We're going to look at Luke 24, and we're going to see what happened. What happened at the tomb? And then I also want to look at, can we believe this? Does this hold intellectual water? The main point I want to communicate this morning is that the grave is empty because Jesus is alive. If you take nothing else from this message, remember this. The tomb is empty because Jesus is alive. That's my main point. Let's look at it. Luke 24, verse 1. And I do want to say, before we begin, we need to know where we're at in Luke. This is the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke speaks about this literal man, that there was a literal man named Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God, who claimed to have the authority to forgive sins, who did miracles and who loved people. And this man named Jesus, in Luke 23, what's just happened is this man, Jesus, has been crucified on a cross. He has been crucified by the Roman Empire, and he has died, and he has been buried in a tomb. And I also want to say that most all historians affirm that. Most all historians, before we get started and see what happened, most all historians affirm that a, that a literal man named Jesus existed, like Luke says, that he was crucified by the Roman Empire, like Luke 23 says, and that he was buried in a tomb in Jerusalem, like the end of Luke 23 says. 
And most all historians also believe that on Sunday, the tomb was empty. On Friday, he was crucified. On Sunday, the tomb was empty. Let's see what happened. Verse 1, Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, and this is Sunday, he was crucified on Friday, this is Sunday. At early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. I want to pause right here. The they, when it says they went to the tomb, these are women followers of Jesus. We know this because just a few verses earlier in Luke 23, verse 55, it says the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. These women uh, saw where Jesus was laid, went back to their house. They rested on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a Saturday. And then early on Sunday morning, they go to Jesus's tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. The reason they're going to his tomb, they're taking spices, they're expecting to see a corpse. They're going to preserve his body. In the first century, this was a common way to preserve a body. They were going to embalm his body with spices so that it wouldn't um, corrode as quickly. Keep reading, verse two. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And we know from verse 23 in, in chapter 24 that these two men are angels. That these are angels who appear to them. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. The main point today, the tomb is empty because Jesus is alive. Look at what they say to him. Why do you seek the living among the dead? They're basically saying, why do you seek a fish outside of water? You're going to find a fish in water. You aren't going to find living people in tombs. Jesus literally lived. There was a literal man named Jesus who lived, who was killed, was crucified, and who literally rose from the dead. The tomb is empty because Jesus is alive. I want to pause right here and I want to say, do not let your familiarity with the Easter story um, cause, this, cause this to just be a, oh yeah, that happened. I've learned that, I, I've known that ever since vacation Bible school. That's the Easter story. Jesus rose from the dead. Do not let your familiarity cause this to not shock you. Think about this. The greatest enemy to humanity since the creation of the world has been death. I don't want to die. I wear my seatbelt. I lock my doors. I take medicine when appropriate. I, we, we want to avoid death. And this is teaching that Jesus Christ overcame death. He rose from the dead. And if you're a Christian, the Bible says that we will be resurrected like Jesus one day and we will live forever with him. That is amazing news. Just the other day, I was um, looking on the internet and I saw something called cryonics, a new, a new scientific advancement called cryonics. And basically the premise is, is that when somebody dies, they can flash freeze their body so that with hopes that in the future when technology advances to the point where they figure out why they died, they could then dethaw them, bring them back to life so they could continue to live. And that just shows we don't want to die. Death is our enemy. It's not natural. 
And Luke 24 is saying, listen, Jesus defeated death. Jesus literally died. He was in the tomb. And when the women came to see him, the angels say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus has overcome our greatest enemy, and we will live together with him forever. So I just want you to think about this. Whenever we sing and we worship, we are singing to a living Savior. Our Savior is alive. Whenever you pray at night and you say in Jesus' name, that you're praying through a living Savior that Hebrews says always lives to make intercession for you. And we'll live together with him. The tomb is empty because Jesus is alive. You worship a living Savior. Let's keep going. Look at verse 6. We see that the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus was not a surprise. That this was the plan all along. That You could say it like this. Jesus called the shot. Look at verse 6. He is not here but has risen. That's the angel talking. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. In Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, at least three times, and probably more than this, but at least three times, there's explicit predictions by Jesus telling his disciples what's going to happen. He calls his shot. And when I say that, what I mean is, um, even with sports reference, you see somebody come up to bat, they're coming up to the plate, and they might go like this right beforehand. They point at the fence. With the bat, they have the bat and they point at the fence. And you know what they're saying? They're saying, I'm about to hit it out of the park on you. I'm about to hit a home run. And then they go to bat. And then if they do hit a home run, they called their shot. Or you say, eight ball, corner pocket. I'm going to bank it off this uh, side of the pool table. It's going to hit this, uh, what's it called, a, a compound, a du- double hit, and hit the eight ball, corner pocket. You call the shot. That's what Jesus did. Jesus at least three times predicted what was going to happen. I'll give you one example. This is in Luke 9.22. This is right after uh, what's known as Peter's uh, good confession. This is right after Jesus says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And in uh, Luke 9.22, Jesus says, don't tell anyone, but I just want you to know, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That was Jesus calling a shot. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. I just want you to know, this is not an accident. When Jesus is on the cross or when Jesus dies, it's not that God has been defeated or that God is up in heaven going, what in the world? They killed my son. I don't know what's going on. No, this was the plan all along. Jesus called the shot, and then he made it happen. He rose from the dead. All throughout the Old Testament, there's references to this Christ who will come, who will be born... um, in the city of David, who will be born in uh, Bethlehem. All throughout the the Psalms and the the law, the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets, there's there's hints that this is going to happen. And then in the Gospels, Jesus says explicitly, I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm pointing my back to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised. Implication that we can take from this is when Jesus says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. We can bank our lives 
on God's word. If, Jesus, if you look in the Bible and you see God's calling a shot right here. Earlier, John read Revelation 20, uh, 20 or 21, and it said, behold, I am making all things new. That's going to happen. When you see promises in the Bible, you can bank your life on them. If, if you're tempted to make a shady business deal, you can bank your life on the proverb. I think it's Proverbs 16:8 uh, that says, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. You can bank your life on that. Though it doesn't make sense, it didn't look like Jesus was gonna die from the dead, or arise from the dead. That's the reason they went to his tomb, to embalm his body. But you can, even when it doesn't make sense, if you see something in God's word, you can bank your life on it. Jesus called his shot. If you see a shot that God calls, it's gonna happen. The tomb is empty because Jesus rose from the dead. He was raised from the dead. At this point, some of you may be thinking, you know what, Brian, I hear what you're saying. I'm a little bit skeptical. I hear Richard Carrier, who's a, a historian, say that this is a myth, we don't have the evidence. And you know what, I, you may be here and you say, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but I just struggle with doubts. I, I'm a little skeptical. Or some of you may be here and you just say, man, I'm gonna be flat honest, I don't believe it. My friend has been begging me to come to church for weeks and I'm, I'm here to please him, but I don't believe this is true. If that's you, if you're here and you are a skeptic, I want you to know that you are a lot more like Jesus' disciples than you realize. You're a lot closer to Jesus' disciples than you realize. And here's what I mean. All throughout Luke 24, there's a theme that his disciples were skeptics. The first skeptics that Jesus had to face were his own followers, were those that he called to be his followers. Look at this in Luke 24. We're going to continue. Verse 9. This is after the angels have told the, have, uh, told the women that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Look verse 9. In returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. The apostles are the guys, when it says the 11, these are the guys that Jesus has handpicked to be his followers. He's saying, you, follow me. They've been with him the past three years, seen him do miracles, seen him turn water into wine, seen him feed the 5,000 with just a few loaves. And look at how they respond to news of his resurrection. Look at verse 11. The women tell them this, verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The guys that Jesus chose to be his disciples, to do ministry with him, were his first skeptics. They did not believe them. It was an idle tale to them. And so I want you to know that if you're here and you're a skeptic, that they came to the place where they embraced Jesus, where they came to the spot where they said, Jesus, I believe in you. I, I've seen with my eyes now. I know you and I'm gonna live for you. But the, the guys who Jesus called to be his disciples weren't the ultra amazing Christians who just had all faith. They were his first skeptics. And if you're a skeptic here today, I ask you, I challenge you, I ask you to allow the resurrection to challenge your worldview this morning. 
You may be here with a a very naturalistic worldview. You may say, if I can't touch it, if I can't prove it by science, if I can't see it, touch it, if it's not 100% fact, I don't believe in it. I only take the facts. I would argue that if you say, I only walk by facts, I don't walk by faith, that your view of the resurrection is still a view of faith. And here's what I mean. You might think, okay, I don't believe in the resurrection. I have doubts, therefore I don't have faith. Everyone else, they just live on this faith, but I don't, I don't cling to faith. What I'm saying is by you saying, you saying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that's actually a leap of faith. So a Christian believes Jesus did rise from the dead and that we do have faith in that. But you also have faith when you say, Jesus didn't rise. I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That is still, even those doubts are actually faith that it didn't happen. As I've said, the, uh, most all historians uh, agree that a literal man named Jesus lived. A literal, he literally died on the cross And on Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. Most all historians agree to that. And one thing that's been debated is, well, why is the tomb empty? What happened with his body? There's been several uh, theories that have been proposed at various points in history by uh, skeptics to account for the empty tomb. Well, this is what happened with his body, or this is what happened with his body. And I want to go through a few of those. And I want you to think about which of these takes a greater leap of faith to believe in. So first, one of the theories is is called the wrong tomb theory. And the theory goes like this. In in Luke 24, verse 1, the women actually went to the wrong tomb. Whenever they saw where Jesus was laid, it was probably dark. They were trying to bury his body before the Sabbath. There was a lot of tombs in the rocks, and they just went to the wrong tomb. That's why the tomb was empty. But think of this. Don't you think someone would have gone and double-checked the tomb? If you're you're the disciples or if you're the Roman authorities and you don't want Christianity to to spring up, if they start saying the tomb's empty, wouldn't you just take them to the right tomb? No, no, no. You went to the wrong tomb, uh, women. Here's actually the right tomb. Here's his body. And then case closed. One of the strongest reasons that I believe that this actually happened is because no one ever produced a body. Think of this. Jesus died in Jerusalem. He was killed and crucified in the city of Jerusalem. He was buried in a tomb in Jerusalem. And then a few weeks later, his followers, his disciples, started preaching that he's been raised from the dead in Jerusalem. It's not like we're, that I say someone's been raised from the dead in Antarctica and no one can go and validate that. They could go to the tomb and check. No one, if you produce a body, Whenever the disciples start preaching that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you produce a body, game over. We're not meeting here today. Christianity's done. One of the strongest evidences for the resurrection is that no one ever produced a body. Another theory that has been um, spread and passed is what's called the hallucination theory. It says, okay, after Jesus died, the disciples were very emotional and turmoil and, and torment, turmoil, someone help me, turmoil, turmoil, thank you, Jesus was in turmoil, 
that you gotta realize these disciples have given everything to follow Jesus. For three years, they've quit their jobs, they've moved, they've packed up, moved cities, they've done everything. They think Jesus is the king of the Jews bringing in the kingdom of God, which he is, but not the way they thought it was. And all of a sudden he's died and you've seen it with your own eyes. It makes a little bit of sense. They could be really sad and maybe they, maybe they had a vision. Maybe they thought they saw Jesus. They had a hallucination and then they started preaching that Jesus has been raised. Well, first of all, the empty tomb still disproves that. Hey guys, you've been having a, here's the tomb. You've been saying you see he's raised. He's really not. But another thing, think of this. Another really strong reason to believe in the resurrection is that there were hundreds of people who claimed to see Jesus. There were hundreds of witnesses. Hundreds of people don't have hallucinations at the same time that all agree together. And we know that there was hundreds of witnesses because of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 4. Listen to this. He says, Jesus was raised from the dead, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He said that Jesus appeared to all these people over a period of, of 40 days, and that he appeared to over 500 people at one time. 500 people at one time aren't going to hallucinate. I'm holding back bad jokes, but I'm, I'm going to keep it there. 500 people at one time are not going to hallucinate. And some of you may say, you know what? I don't believe that. That's in the Bible. How are you, you going to prove something by the Bible? It's all written to make it up. Well, you've got to think about this. 1 Corinthians, that what I just read, is a public letter that was circulating um, within the lifetime of these witnesses. This is a public letter that's not hidden in a little closet somewhere that we found many, many years later. This is a public letter that's being circulated around churches. And this is written, uh, all scholars, all experts believe that this is no more than 20 years after Jesus died. And Paul even says right here, he says when he appeared to 500 brothers at one time, he says, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's, he's, I'm not, he's not saying, you know, there was a lot of witnesses, but they're all dead now, so you can't go ask them. He's saying, you can go fact check me. There's over, there was over 500 and most of them are still alive. You just, the apostle Paul couldn't have said that if it wasn't true. His whole ministry would have been blown up. I, if I'm up here, and I was a big name preacher, I just couldn't say false facts that, uh, and say, you could go ask John right here. He's a witness and he's alive and he's right here. You go ask John. He says, no, you don't believe anything else I say. There were hundreds of witnesses. If there weren't, Paul just simply couldn't have said this and circulated a letter saying that they're still alive within 20 years of when it happened. Another theory that has been proposed is what is what is known as the swoon theory. This is what's known as the swoon theory, and this is really popular whenever modern science and modern medicine started being advanced, I think in maybe the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. Basically, the theory was is when Jesus was killed on the cross, he didn't really die. He was just, he was just really, really, really in pain. He was... Um, being nailed to the cross, and he actually passed out. He swooned. He fainted. Then they thought he was dead. They buried him in the tomb. In the tomb, he was in the coolness of the tomb, in the darkness and coolness of the tomb. His body revived, 
And that's the reason he presented himself as alive. He never rose from the dead. He just swooned, and they thought he rose from the dead. Now, let me just say, that takes a lot of faith to believe. Just think of this. You're, you're believing that after Jesus being beaten, after Jesus being nailed to a cross, after Jesus being a spear going into his side, that Jesus passed out, and then he was able to recover with no water, no food, and sneak past the guards, guarding his tomb, and convince his uh, disciples that he's alive. You also have to believe that the Roman experts, the Roman executioners, failed at their job, that they really, they thought Jesus was dead, but they didn't kill him, which means they would have been killed for that. That just, that just doesn't hold intellectual water. That just doesn't, that doesn't do it. That's too big of a leap of faith for me. And then one, one last theory that's been proposed is that the body was stolen. That when the women showed up to the tomb that morning, the tomb was empty, not because Jesus is alive, like I'm arguing, but that the body was stolen. And this makes sense. His disciples, you know, the disciples, they, they wanted to start a religion. They wanted to start this massive following. So the disciples probably snuck in, stole the body, and then that's the reason the tomb was empty, proclaimed as being risen from the dead. That's the reason a body was never presented, because the disciples had it. Well, first of all, to believe this, do, do you know anything about the disciples? If you read the Gospels, do you know who the disciples are? They, they are, they're really, 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 they are ordinary. They're, they're a bunch of ordinary Joes. If your name is Joe in here, I'm not calling you ordinary. I'm just saying the disciples were, were a bunch of ordinary folks. They're kind of wimpy. They're not very smart. They're common folks. And we're say, are you saying that they all of a sudden turn into Jack Bauer, create this elaborate scheme, overpower the guards, steal the body, and then change the world? Probably not. But just even think of this, more evidence. The, the main reason for me to believe in the resurrection of Jesus is the lives of the disciples, the transformed lives of disciples. Here's what I mean. The very people who claim to be an eyewitness, the disciples, that Jesus, they started preaching Jesus has been raised from the dead, are the very people who paid for it with their own blood. Their lives were changed when they saw Jesus raised from the dead. They go earlier in Luke when the Roman authorities arrest Jesus. What do all the disciples do? They run. They flee. And then we see after the resurrection, after the resurrection, their lives are just changed. Peter goes from a man who denies Jesus three times to, uh, to little girls. He denies Jesus in caves. All of a sudden, Peter's standing up and acts to the, to the authorities and saying, I can't help but testify to what I have seen with my own eyes and heard. I'm not going to be quiet about it. I know it's true. The lives of the disciples were changed. And every single history, this is not in the Bible, but history tells us that every single one of the apostles except one was killed for it. And these are gruesome deaths. I mean being crucified upside down or being boiled alive. And not one of them caved. You would think if they knew, if they knew that it was false, if they were making this up, man, 
I'm scared of shots. You, you put a needle at me, I'm, I'm telling you anything you know. And they all die for it with their own blood. They all pay for it. And you might say, well, people die for their religion all the time today. Don't, don't people of other religions, maybe Christian martyrs, or maybe um, even Islamic extremists, they die for their religion. You can't say that dying for your religion proves that it's true. Yes, but these people claim to be eyewitnesses. If I die for my religion, I, I'm pretty sure it's real. I mean, I, I'm trying to give my life to it, but I am not 100% eyewitness. These people, if you, if you claim to be the one who saw Jesus raised from the dead, you know it's true or not. And when they start coming at you with lions and, and crosses and, and boiling water, you're going to tell the truth. You're, not one of them caved. All of them gave their lives and died for this. The lives of Jesus' followers testify that what they saw was real, that they really, really, Jesus really rose from the dead. As As Pascal says, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Now that's pretty, that's pretty gory and that's pretty violent, but that's what happened. I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. They gave their lives for this. Another reason to believe, and this, is, we'll, we'll, um, this will be one of the last reasons, but another reason to believe that this actually happened, what's written in Luke, is that it seems that Luke is really trying to write what really happened, that he's not just trying to make this up. And the reason I say that is because if he was trying to make this up, if he was just trying to make something up in the Gospel of Luke, he would have written it a lot differently. Think of this. In verse 1 and 2, who finds the body? Who finds the empty tomb? It's the women. Are y'all with me? It's the women. In the first century culture, that would not, by saying the women found the tomb, would not be a way to create a religion. In the first century culture, women just, they they aren't viewed as high as men. They aren't viewed as, um, they aren't viewed as, um, as, uh, as, as trustworthy. They were not allowed to testify in court. In the first century, you, a woman's testimony wouldn't be accepted in court. And they're really not viewed as, as, as human as men are viewed as human. They're viewed a little bit, they're, they're second-class humans. The only reason why Luke would have written that women found the empty tomb is if women really did find the empty tomb. That would have really cut at the feet of his cause. You would be reading it. It'd be like, oh, the dogs told me this happened. I'm not reading that. The dog, dogs don't speak. Dogs don't tell us that. And women, I'm not comparing you to dogs. This is in the first century culture. They were just, they were not trusted. They were not a trustable source. They were not a trustworthy source. And, and this would not be a way to trick people to believe that your religion's real. The tomb was empty because Jesus is alive. And I believe that if you're looking at the evidence and looking at which leap of faith you're gonna make, that it takes too much faith to believe anything else, that the evidence points that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The disciples' lives were changed because Jesus is alive and they saw that. So they did, whenever they were going to die, they knew they would rise again with Jesus. I wanna close with this. If you're here today, and if you are skeptical, even with your skepticism, you should want this to be true. I'll say that again. 
even if you are skeptical, and even if you have maybe some intellectual problems, you should want this to be true. Why? Because the resurrection gives meaning, and it gives purpose to life. Here's what I mean. This right here is actually an article that I came across a few years ago. The uh, title of the article is Atheist Turned Christian Asks, Is It Really All About Nothing? And the, picture, the guy in this picture is my professor at the University of Georgia my freshman year. I came across this article several years later, and I was like, are you kidding me? Atheist turned Christian asked, is this really all about nothing? Now, first of all, um, the article describes my professor's conversion to Christianity. I'm not going to get into that. It's a pretty fascinating conversion. Um, and first, let's just be honest. That makes me feel a little bit better intellectually. <laughs> when, I see thing, when I see people like Lee Strobel or C.S. Lewis or whoever out to prove Christianity wrong or see my professor, I'm like, man, what does he say to all the things he used to say? I want to kind of go back to him and argue his points to him to see, do to him what he did to me. But that just makes me feel a little bit better intellectually. But also, the, the article begins, I'm going to read the first line of the article, the first quote, and this is why the rex, that you should want the resurrection to be true. Listen to this, and this is my professor quoting. He said, When I began to think about the logical conclusion of atheism, I asked myself, is it really all about nothing? And I realized that I could not accept that conclusion. I asked myself, is it really all about nothing? When I thought about my worldview and my atheism, that there is no God, that Jesus did not rise from the dead, the logical conclusion to that is that everything is meaningless, nothing matters. Think of it, if there's no creator God, if, if we're all just products of natural selection and evolution and um, that we're just all here random by chance, there's no such things as true love. Um, love is really just some hormones in my brain going off that make me feel this way so that I would uh, reproduce and have children to continue the species. It's meaningless. There's no purpose. But th think of this. What gives your life purpose? What is your life about? My life is, has purpose because of what? Maybe it's, I, my life has purpose because I'm going to make a name for myself in my career. I'm going to advance and I'm going to do something great. And I would just say, man, in a hundred years, who cares? It doesn't matter. There's no meaning to that. Or maybe it's, but, um, but the, my life has purpose because of this boy or this girl. Well, one is, you probably don't know that boy or girl very well because if you really get to know them, they're not going to be uh, basing your life on them. But think of it. In 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, we're not going to be, the things that we devote our lives to are going to be gone. We're going to be gone. It doesn't matter. Even if I have a lot of fun or even if I make a lot of differences, for what? It's all vanity. Eventually, eventually I'm forgotten. And even if I become someone who's remembered, I'm still dead and there's nothing. Life is meaningless without the resurrection, without eternal life, without an afterlife. But if Jesus really did arise from the dead, the Bible teaches that those who trust in Jesus, that those who believe in Jesus 
when he comes back, we'll be raised with him. And as Revelation 21 said, he is making all things new. We will live with God forever in a perfect world. And that's what we've been designed for. That's what you long for. You should want this to be true. Even if you can't wrap your mind around it, don't you want, don't you want to avoid death? Don't you want to live forever with God? That's what we've been created for. We've been designed. You have been designed for a relationship with God and to live forever. And it doesn't matter what you try to fill your life with to, uh, to fulfill that void. Without Jesus, it's meaningless. You should want this to be true. It can be true for you. It can be yours. If you're a Christian here and you've trusted in Jesus and turned from your sins, it's yours. Remember, the Jesus that you worship is alive. And if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, you can have it today. I invite you, like the skeptic disciples, to, to see Jesus and the scriptures and to trust in him and to return from your sins, and it will be yours. The Bible promises that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And in conclusion, last group of people I want to address. We've, we've talked about Christians, you're worshiping Jesus. For skeptics, you should want this to be true. I think there's probably another group of people in this room, and this is who I used to be. It's somebody who intellectually probably assents that this is true, this is the Easter story I've heard all my life. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't move you. It doesn't grip you. It's, yeah, that's true. Okay, now let me get on with my life because that's just kind of something, a prayer I prayed when I was eight to get out of hell and go to heaven. C.S. Lewis, he has a quote. Listen to this. It says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. The resurrected Jesus, the living Jesus, the appropriate response to Jesus rising from the dead, you can read the rest of Luke 24, the disciples devoted themselves to worshiping Jesus and to serving him. Christianity being moderately important, the resurrection said, that can't be real. And I'm just going to be honest, that is a, that is a damning uh, belief, Christianity being moderately important. Jesus being raised from the dead. If Jesus really was raised from the dead, then that means you should devote your life to it. And not like a duty that, oh, I don't want to, but this is what you've been designed for. Christianity, if not true, no importance. We should go home, we're just playing religious games. If it is true, it's of ultimate importance because it answers all of life's greatest questions. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. The tomb is empty because Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father, we praise you God, I praise you for the hope of eternal life. I praise you for the love of a father who planned this from the beginning, that this wasn't an afterthought, but that you love your children so much 
that you sent your only begotten son to live the perfect life of obedience, to die the sinner's death for us, that we might know you, that we might live a life of purpose and bringing glory to you, and that Jesus rose from the dead, God, that our greatest enemy, the thing that we try to avoid, death, though it's scary, though it's not natural, though you still hate it, Lord, you have conquered it, and we will live forever with Jesus. Thank you for that hope. Encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.